Hello and welcome to the eye of the Podnado on a blustery spring day. We've got a real treat for you today. Tim heads to Surrey to chat to Icelandic composer Anna Thorsdottir. It's a little away day field trip. Through deepest, darkest Surrey on my way to Anathoris Dottir's home. The birds are tweeting, the sun's out. England in spring. Glorious. Treated myself to a chicken bacon sandwich from a farm shop that I just walked past. Juicy. Delicious. I'm here. Where's the bell? Ah. I thought it would be nice just to go back and talk about earlier days. And you were from Iceland, originally born in Iceland, grew up in a pretty small town, I gather, mm-hmm. and studied cello initially in Reykjavik. Yeah. Before deciding to turn and pursue composition. When did you have that moment of clarity? When did you realise it was possible that this was a viable career way of life um ambition to have to become a composer yeah it's um it's a tricky thing you know with making art for me personally i can answer the question very quickly by saying those days back when i was becoming a composer and and studying composition it was much more the passion that drove me than Mm. um than thinking about the career you know when I was little I studied different instruments and then always wanted to study the cello uh, such a wonderful instrument and when I was a teenager you know I got to know more and more contemporary music and that also you know being a kid that I was always making up songs and and music in my head and singing kind of my own uh, music, but I had never thought about writing it down or mm. or being a composer in that way. So I think my first initial maybe aha moment uh, to write down the music I was, uh, you know, somewhat hearing and, and feeling was when I was playing more and more contemporary music on the cello, mm. realizing, oh yeah, th- this is amazing. This is something people do and there's so much freedom here so much to explore and um, so many possibilities because when you are studying an instrument you play a lot of the older repertoire and I also did that which is great 
Um, but it was an eye-opener that it's possible to have this whole other spectrum mm. to music. And that kind of uh, opened the door for my own creativity to kind of go to the page, to the paper, to write music. And from there on, it was there was no turning back. You know, mm. I just knew immediately this is something... I want to do career or not. This mm. is just something I want to do in life. Right. And then, um, you know, I was working really hard and just writing a lot of music and um, knowing that this was a path I wanted to stay on that kind of allowed me to then pursue a career. Mm. The combination of the passion, the, the, the working hard bit and... Um, you know, studying, and I, I went on to study um, in California, my master's and PhD. So I know this is a long answer to a fairly simple question, at least from my perspective, but it it means that um, I never feel that I decided to pursue a career mm. in composition, but I was really um, thankful and I'm, I'm really happy that I could continue on this path. Sure. Okay, so you were particularly interested in contemporary or new music when you were younger and starting to get interested in the musical world. Were there any particular composers that you were playing when you were playing your cello or, or, or started, yeah, in that early stage that had a big influence? Oh, absolutely. Um, for example, you know, I, as I said, I was playing the cello and um, I played this beautiful solo piece uh, by Hans Werner Hanse, another piece by Ollis Salinen, amazing solo piece, um, you know, so it was, uh, there were different things, and then I was also playing in, in orchestras, uh, the the um, music schools that I went to had these orchestral projects, and mm. yeah, no, but I think the, um, the Hanse and the Salinen pieces were, for me personally, were, you know, it was special because it was uh, something that you dive in from a different perspective when you are on your own. Mm. I'd read that as well as Penderecki, George Crumb is somebody that you've cited in the past as being quite influential. I don't know. Is, it, yeah. is that true? It, it is true from the perspective that uh, it was some of the first contemporary uh, music I heard. Yeah. And mind-blowing mm. uh, it still is but at that point it was I think for many people I, I don't think I'm alone here that you know you just get a sense of the combination of for example in Crumb the combination of uh, lyricism and noise mm. and sound textures and uh, different kinds of material marrying each other it's just it was really something that um had a big, big impact on me yeah. when I was a, a teenager uh, and heard this for the first time. And Penderecki as well. Uh, um, these pieces could have been other pieces. It was. It just so happened that these were the ones that, at this pivotal time... Mm, got you I, first. Yeah. But it always is a very kind of special part of you, these these things that that you kind of 
grab onto and yes. think, wow, this is... Oh yeah, particularly at that age. <laughs> exactly, Quite exactly. Young. What about your parents? Were they influential musically on you? Yeah, well, you know, my mom is a music teacher right, and she yeah. was always very supportive and kind of want, but still wanting it to be a choice. It was never an, an application or something that hmm. me and my sister were supposed to do. It was an invitation to yeah. music. And I think that worked really well for me. I'm yeah. not sure how well I would have coped with the pressure of being supposed to do this yeah. or that. But so, yeah, that was a really wonderful kind of uh, support from her. My dad is a carpenter, mm -hmm. maybe not as kind of preoccupied by music as my mom, but mm. you know, but yeah, so there was always support. Were they playing things to you like uh, on the family sound system or? Not really in that way. My mom was obviously playing the piano a lot yeah. <clears throat> and the music that she was playing was, you know, Greek mm. and Liszt and, but um yeah, so, no, not really, not That's so much. That's interesting, yeah. yeah. It feels like Iceland, I mean, for it's quite a small country compared to many other countries in Europe, it, it punches quite a lot above its weight musically because there's you know, there are a lot of very well-renowned, yeah. respected artists. And then Bedroom Community, record sure. label, um, some fantastic Eurovision entries, I should <laughs> say. But, you know, why do you think that is, or is that almost a cliché? It is really difficult to give an answer, mm. a one, one answer to a question like this. Iceland has a lot of things. I mean, yes, it is very small. It has a very small population and, and a very short music history, really, mm. as, as, as an island. You know, yeah. of course, we grew up with studying the history of Western music and, you know, all these things like in the Western music schools. But... In some ways, I think it has some sort of freedom. Uh, it's, it's hard for me to put this into words. It has, well, first of all, the landscape has a lot of space. There yeah. is so much space everywhere. There are few people, so there is space for the individual. Mm. There are quite good systems. There are really good music schools. There's a lot of do-it-yourself energy just because you basically have to do it yourself. Right. There are okay. not that many people kind of to rely on and that also means that um, people go between genres like in one day uh, between all the genres really yeah. some are playing in in pop bands in the evenings and and in a symphony orchestra during the day and mm. and then in a jazz club you know it's it, it, people wear many different hats mm. I'm just listing up things that might sure. contribute to yeah. um, this energy but Otherwise, it's just, I, I really don't know. It, uh... Is there a different appreciation for the, the role of the artist? I think this is a great question, but when I think about it, actually, no. Mm, yeah. People, okay, and this is actually quite interesting, and I can give you an example. You know, um, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to not make this come out the wrong way, but mm. in Iceland, basically nobody is famous or basically nobody is um, more or less than anyone else. I, it's hard to uh, put this into words, but for example, you know, uh, like Björk, she has spoken about this a lot, 
that mm. she is so free in Iceland. Nobody approaches her, but just people know yeah. that this is not how it works in Iceland. Mm. <laughs> and uh, I know that she has even invited other celebrities to come to Iceland because that, that's so uh, free. But, you know, don't get me wrong. Of course, people recognize and are starstruck. Yeah. But I, I don't know. Like It doesn't feel that there is this huge appreciation for the artist. It's more that we are all just doing this together. It's more the opposite, right? Yeah, yeah. kind of. But I don't want to make this sound weird but it, it just the way that I feel that this is and, and I know my mm. friends and colleagues do as well This idea of landscape and nature, and specifically an Icelandic landscape, is something that follows your music a lot of places, or certainly in the press it does. Mm-hmm. Like there's, there was a Financial Times article uh, profile, that, and the first sentence said, um, listening to your music is, is a little like listening to, to Iceland itself. And I wondered, you know, is there... <sighs> an audience expectation perhaps or, or for you to write these big pieces that represent or do you think the audience expects to hear Iceland and nature in your music and does that ever hold a certain amount of pressure? Yeah you know um, maybe some people expect to hear that um, mm. I, I wouldn't really know but you know, it's always fascinating to me to hear what people hear mm, yeah. in the music. And that's a very individual experience. And I've heard uh, many different journeys uh, from people's experiences from the same piece. You know, some people feel like they're flying, other fe- others feel like they're on the top of a mountain or, mm-hmm. or at the ocean, you know. That's a very individual experience. A lot of people then, yes, do say that they hear Iceland in my music. That's, you know, as much as you can hear landscape in music, I mean, I think it's wonderful that it takes your mind there. It's not my intention, and I don't think you even could possibly try to describe landscapes in music at least that's not something I am striving at when I am inspired by nature it's more about the elements it really is about the energy in nature and of course kind of the construction and it sometimes helps and it is when I find things that are musically interesting you know how this moves and becomes that and and how does nature do that and that sometimes helps, but I'm never really thinking, oh, this is such a beautiful place, mm. I want to describe it. That has never happened. It's not programmatic. No. The inspiration and energy is much more subtle and mm. elemental in a way. Yeah. And, uh, and then again, when I hear people talking about Iceland in my music, a lot of people also mention space. 
And this I find very interesting because in Iceland there is a lot of space. There, there is op- There are open vistas. You, you kind of almost always see somewhat far on the horizon, mm-hmm. and there's water everywhere because we only live in Iceland around the the coastline. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I think it's a. There are complex things. Are also complex things that probably have influenced me in ways mm-hmm. that I do not recognize myself. Sure, I was interested because you'll you'll be doing a old professor residency. Yeah. One of the pieces that you'll be doing, Ion, which is being formed by the BBC Symphony Orchestra, the UK premiere, yeah. that has an interesting idea behind it. I think I'm right in saying it's inspired by this idea of being able to move freely in time and explore time as a space that you inhabit. Yeah. How do you expect the audience, or do you expect the audience to get have a sense of that? And do you think it's important that they read a program note before it to see that you're, that's your inspiration and try and experience it in that way? Or are you just not bothered how they experience it and should they be able to listen to it without knowing that? Absolutely. You, yeah, this is a, this is a great question. <laughs> um, for myself, the inspiration, the origin story behind the piece is for myself really only that. It's something that uh, sometimes ignites the a- a energy and atmosphere in a piece, in some pieces more than others. Mm. But for me, it is never about needing the audience to know this is what the piece is about, this is what you should be listening for. Mm. It really is all about the music. Mm-hmm. And that so it is as well when I'm writing the piece and, and writing the music because... It's all about the experience, and and this is also how I find my music. Mm. Not through the ideas, but internally. And the ideas help to um, sometimes structure and form the parts of the orchestration and parts of the flow of the music. Mm. So I never feel that it's needed or necessary to read program notes for my music. I really, really want people to approach the music on their own terms. Mm -hmm. But I do understand that sometimes people find it interesting to know where the sparks are. What were some of the ideas that that I had when I was writing the pieces? And for example, in Ion, uh, inspiration of time and moving freely... um, this was sparked really early in the process of writing the piece and I was thinking about um, generations and how you connect to uh, your own lifespan mm. and if you were able to kind of go to different parts in your own existence, not through memory, but by actually going there. Mm. And this idea helped to structure the overall piece so that you can hear subtle resonances of different memories and ideas and moving in time throughout mm. the entire piece, but it's never exactly the same. That I'm not, It does not mean that there are repetitions, there are not, but there are certain elements that I compositionally um, wrote in the piece in a way to kind of reflect with this, mm-hmm. with this overall idea.
listeners won't be able to see this, obviously, but there are, there's a stack of giant, a giant stack of paper behind me on a desk <laughs> that is uh, presumably what you would draw on to start the compositional process, and presumably yeah. how you started Ion as well. Oh, absolutely, yes. I do, I do. I have, have these big arches of paper um, that I draw on, mm-hmm. and um, it's a mnemonic device. Mm. Because it it takes a long time to to write a, a big piece uh, for hundred people, so I store the structure of a piece on these papers and mm. a lot of the details that go into each and every part of a piece. Um, a lot of it is graphic um, images that nobody else would be able to listen to from that page, but. But I can listen back to the ideas through these uh, drawings. Mm-hmm. Do you like to show these pieces, these drawings, once the piece is finished, or do you like to keep them away, separate, hidden? Yeah, no. I mean, I I would throw them in a drawer and never show anyone. <laughs> but, oh, would you? Yeah, <laughs> but that's just because it's so. For myself, it's mm. it really is a is a working tool. It's like. For me, it's a bit like not showing the first draft of yeah. a paper you're writing, but I do understand that it is very different. And uh, I have shown it to a lot of people who have asked now that, you know, mm-hmm. I would have never thought to do that myself, but but I'm happy to show it if yeah. people want to see it. it. And it is very different because this is not notation, but these are not graphic scores. Yeah. So it's just completely different. Uh, think but a part of the working process sure a lot of the pieces we've spoken about or all of the pieces we've spoken about so far are quite a big they're, they're on a large scale orchestral works I was interested to read that you were encouraged to start small and work up to big but you can't perhaps ignored that advice when you were studying is that true no I was actually never encouraged to start small because I was already had written so right, many yeah. pieces before I started studying composition. <laughs> right, <yeah. laughs> but 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 what did happen and I think you might be referring to is that before I started studying composition I also wrote my first orchestral piece. Right. And I and at that point, you know, friends and colleagues, no I did I didn't have composition teachers at that point, but and they were just saying that I must be crazy because, you know, it takes a long time. You're spending all this time on a piece that will never be performed. You know, mm-hmm. that those types of things I got to hear. And, I, you know, it did not affect me one bit. I, it was just purely out of, pa- uh, you know, from passion. And I thought it doesn't matter if it will be performed or not because mm-hmm. I'm practicing. Yeah I, yeah, I want to write this piece and I want to write another orchestra piece and... It, it truly did not matter to me at that point if mm. it would be performed or not. But it ended up, ended up being performed a couple of years later, actually. Oh, really, did it? It did. Uh, someone at the Iceland Symphony at that point heard about this apparently crazy lady who had written <laughs> a, 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 an orchestra piece, and they asked me to um, show them the music. Mm. And I did, and they programmed it. Wow. Yeah. And how old were you when that was performed? Oh, the uh, early twenties. That's a I think hell of a. That was that was scary for sure. Yeah. That was yeah, and it was really, um, 
like you said, it was a really uh, an opportunity of a magnitude that I only am starting to understand now. Mm. Just because it, um, you know, I had written it and, and this was a, a few years later that it was programmed and I had already written another orchestra piece at that point. Mm. And it was just so magnificent to get a chance to, you know, this young stand there in front of a full orchestra who's mm. rehearsing your piece and to uh, work with these amazing musicians. It was, you know, I never take anything for granted, sure. but, but I, it's a little bit of an outer body experience mm. when you when you have that. What's the name of that piece? What was the name? It's in Icelandic. Oh, okay. Stund Strida. Okay, well, I won't, re- <laughs> I won't try and repeat that. Sure, sure. <laughs> I was thrilled with your cameo in Todd yes. Field's Tar and to see your music form mm-hmm. such an important part of the film, right? Because yeah. it's a very, for the listeners that haven't seen Tar, there is a scene quite early on in which the title character gives a masterclass at Juilliard and a young conductor is conducting one of your pieces. Uh, and Lydia Tar goes on to be actually quite disparaging um, for the for the sake of the the plot, um, because she is uh, a fascinating but quite traditional old school character, right? And I, I mean, firstly, I presume we were aware of this pre-release that you were involved. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I I knew, I knew about this uh, scene. Yes. It was um, almost a year and a half before the film was released. Mm-hmm. I got sent. Uh, these relevant pages from the script. Oh, did you? Wow. I did. And I was so surprised. First, you know, first I was so fascinated to see, wow, somebody's making a movie about a conductor. Mm. And then, because I didn't know that much at that point, they were asking to license Roe for the film. Mm-hmm. And then I had a couple of questions just to understand what, what the... Uh, nature of the film and the mm. character would be and I was told about the complicated uh, nature of this main character. Do you know, I think it's fascinating. I I never was offended or anything. Mm. I f- feel that this is this is just really such a such an amazing thing to write. I really like this movie. Mm, yeah, I, it's a really, really good film. I, I thought it was interesting that because I suppose Tara is, is an anti-hero. Right? She's basically the bad guy so it's interesting that um with her character sort of being disrespectful about um your music i suppose in the scene that almost sets you up to be the hero of the film um Um, yeah and and it's also kind of the 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 hidden layers of the film are also quite important and you know like you say she is she has grown up 
within certain cultures. Mm. You know, it for me it, it spoke very deeply um, that the things that see you know if you if you think deeply about a character like this the things that she must have had to endure as a female conductor mm. and studying with you know having older role models mm. uh, that are very different from yeah. her and you know turning that into not sharing empathy maybe mm. but sharing the harsh yeah it's really yeah, I think it's a really important film. It's re- it's really interesting. One of my favourite bits is when she's punching the punch bag to the rhythm of Ina Kleine Nacht music. Dum bum 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 bum. Like and subscribe. Like and subscribe. Speaking of um, punch bags and punching rhythms, yeah. at the end of every uh, interview that we, we do in, on the Classical Music Pub, we, we like to play either a game mm-hmm. or do a quiz or something silly to finish mm-hmm. off with. Okay. And um, inspired by Tar's punch bag, I was thinking um, I could clap out some rhythms of the famous melodies and you could see if you could guess oh, them. Oh, jeez. Okay. <laughs> so the first one, uh, this is... I can give you a clue with each one, which perhaps might make it a bit easier. This one is a famously hated piece of classical music. (laughs) I can do it again. Yeah, okay. If I I tap at the rhythm at the same time. Oh, yeah, Bolero. Bolero! Yeah, sorry, I'm like, yeah, yeah. Okay, second one. (laughs) Uh, This is uh, in three. Yes. (laughs) The Blue Danube. Yep. Uh, Okay, (laughs) next one. Uh, This is... One of the most famous pieces of music by this composer. It's like mm. the piece of music. Okay. And he was famously difficult. <laughs> Your face. You look terrified. Okay, sec- I'll give you one more clue. This is from an opera. Can we have a different game? <laughs> no, no. Uh, do you want me to sing it? Yes. Bum 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 Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, last, uh, second last one. Uh, this is a, a slightly, <laughs> this is almost a trick. Clapping music. Yay! Yeah. I've got one more, I've got one more. Yeah. But, um... This is really, really hard unless I give you the clue, which is probably... I think this is maybe the most famous piece of Icelandic indie pop music okay. that there is. But it doesn't really have a recognisable rhythm. No, then I, I... but I should know this. Okay, I'll sing it. Oh yeah, yeah. But I did know it was Sigurós. Uh, Sigurós, right? Yeah, Sigurós. Yeah. yeah, yeah. 
but I, but yeah. So, th- so the thing is that it's so fascinating, I, and I need to say this because Please. it's because of course I know this this song mm. really really well. Mm. But it's the taking out the rhythm because th- that kind of throws me off yeah, yeah. a lot, <laughs> like more than I would have thought. Really, it's interesting that. Is it because you're so attuned to pitch and... Yeah, uh, I'm just, I think, like, the kind of flow and mm. the all, overall thing. Yeah. And I also, like, the Zero song, I, I... Like like you said, it's not possible to clap this rhythm. Mm. It's so much... There's so much flow. Anyway, but it's, no, it's an interesting game because... With the most famous um, mm. rhythms, it's, 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 unless it is rhythm, like clapping music, it's like yeah, it's clapping yeah, music. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Classical music. Hey man, good Adam Buxton walking around Surrey, was it? He was the inspiration for the... Of course he was. Yeah, I needed crunching gravel. so much that we do. And a dog voice, but... <laughs> <laughs> um, just little nuggets of gold dropping out of mm. Anna's mouth there. I loved these pieces could have been other pieces mm-hmm. Yeah, as an idea. I don't, I'm not really sure where it goes, just as a sort of vignette of a moment of life experience where... Yeah. What if she'd encountered blah rather than Mary blah. Poppins? Yeah, and it just <laughs> sets off a completely different musical journey. Or maybe it doesn't. Uh, it's just mm. we'll always have those connections with special moments, special pieces like Scheherazade. I remember playing Marla one as well in like youth orchestras and just mm. being like, "Whoa, this is what a symphony orchestra is." Yes, it could have been Right of Spring, but it was Marla one. For me, it was really heavy metal and emo music which mm. is why i still listen to that today and some of it's objectively bad and i remember yet, the, the hat and fringe phase yeah, yeah and the black nail varnish i also loved that line where she talked about the feeling of should what she should be doing or even what iceland should be doing Yes. Uh, and I thought that, that was an interesting part of your discussion about how Iceland sort of punches above its weight. Mm-hmm. And I wondered whether it occupies a space where it picks up all the training and influence of Western classical music, but is unencumbered by any sense of what they should. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, There's no obligation to tradition. Mm-hmm. There's just and being informed by it. <clears throat> and I think she mentioned this. But a part of that is just the fact that Iceland's classical music tradition is so young. Mm. Uh, and funnily enough, readers may have, listeners may have already read this, but the day after I interviewed Anna, an article uh, on The Guardian was published by Andrew Meller. Mm, friend of the pod. Friend of the pod, who is a Nordic music expert. And mm. this it was essentially a plug for the Iceland Symphony Orchestra's tour <laughs> of, of the UK. That's what it was pegged to. But... He attempted to answer this question of why Iceland uh, is so unusual. And Mm. a lot of the points he covered were very similar to the points that Anna herself covered. I hadn't realised that the Iceland Symphony Orchestra is only founded in 1950. And the 1926 was the first foreign orchestra tour 
so essentially it was Iceland's first taste of a full-size live symphony orchestra. So it's so young, right, mm. in that tradition. Um, there's just to pull out one quote from the article. While the rest of the world was busy erecting barriers between music genres last century, roping off classical music in particular, Iceland was simply trying to get things going. There was no time wasted deciding who was allowed to listen to what, you know, which mm. resonates with what Anna was saying, doesn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And something we've spoken about before is the idea that when musicians just have to do many jobs, they grow into really random musicians. Mm. So thinking back, thousands of years to Guido or William Byrd or whatever, mm-hmm. you know, your music publisher, scholar, performer, composer, teacher, all these different things yes. out of necessity because you're in a maybe a slightly isolated place and you just have to fill all the jobs. Mm. Um, There's and, not as so much competition as well. Yeah, well, now in London, say, you'd really struggle to justify if someone come up to you and said, oh, I'm a violinist and I'm a singer mm. uh, and I'm a conductor my gut instinct is always, are you really any of those things? It mm. takes someone so special because the competition is so fierce. Uh, it, you have to be a Stephen Huff or a Roddy Williams who's got like a little sideline in composing or mm. a Thomas Addos where you're like, well, I'm the guy who conducts my operas, but I'd love to hear him play more piano. Mm. He hasn't separately built another piano career. Yeah, that's something about the English sensibility almost comes across as a bit sort of arrogant to say that you're one thing and another as well. Not maybe mm. arrogant isn't the right word, but it's a bit like, all right, yeah, sure. Okay. Yeah. And you sort of you sort of ignore it. <laughs> Whereas in Iceland, you could justifiably have to be the mm. person who plays in the funk band and runs the choir and teaches the kids in the morning. Yeah, and wears black nail varnish. I was struck by Anna's super chilled... Mm approach to programs in her music program notes and and feeling like she, she doesn't need to explain the inspirations behind works and it's totally fine for people to just turn up mm. uh, not knowing anything and think whatever they like about a piece did you feel under threat as someone who writes program notes <laughs> no <laughs> yes yeah. no 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 and i thought it was interesting and and it's certainly an instinct of mine uh, that the more uh, inaccessible a piece of music gets, the more I want to know the meaning or uh, program mm. behind it, because then at least I have something intellectually, if not sensorily, stimulating. Mm. <laughs> Is that a word? I don't think so. <laughs> but you know what I mean. I do, yeah. And I think um, it's something I'm thinking about a little bit with my own music making at the moment, with having the desire to intellectualise things or to explain mm. rather than feel or experience them and yes. sort of working against that. So maybe the, even the use of the word inaccessible, mm. maybe we... Yeah, that's not the right word. Well, maybe but... there aren't layers that we need to go past. Actually, you need to get rid of your own mm. intellectual barriers and then yeah. just sort of bathe in the noise. I loved her use of the word noise yes. when talking about George Crumb. Um, but that South African production I was in at Sadler's Wells recently, Clang, uh, with uh, Gregory McComer, he there was a, so much emphasis on not explaining it to the audience mm. because then it becomes one thing. Yeah. Whereas if it's unexplained, it can be multiple things. Multiple truths are equally valid. Mm. Whereas if you tell them it's about a little boy who goes to the shops, then that is the truth. Mm-hmm. Whereas people could project their own things onto it. 
Yeah, yeah. And that is, um, it's ripe for exploration if your instinct is to process and explain, as I think ours is. Yes, perhaps we need to challenge that instinct Mm. more often. Might be a problem for the pod if we stop talking about music. (laughs) We could just do an episode with silence. Mm, Or sort of guttural reaction sounds. (laughs) 